Welcome to another exciting podcast of The Faith Awakens. This is our 16th episode now, Sweet 16. We've been doing this a while now, since February. So um, this is Father Tom Hennon, chaplain at St. Ambrose University, and I am joined this week, as I always am, by my co-host... Megan Grady, uh, SAU student. Um, happy to be talking to you again this week, Father Tom. I look forward to uh, talking to you over WebEx and also the phone every week. So happy yeah. to be here again for the 16th episode. That's pretty exciting. I think this is like during the summer and during all of this pandemic stuff, like this is one of my main maybe only regular student <laughs> contacts that I have. So I really appreciate it, too. It's good to do. So, and we are joined on our call and on our podcast this week, too, uh, by one of our faculty members, uh, Dr. Grant Tejan, uh, who teaches here in sociology and criminal justice. And so, as you might be able to guess from his areas of expertise, we want to kind of talk about some of the things that we have been as a country witnessing in these last few weeks. So, uh, Dr. Tejan, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit and maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself, and then I'll get into our topic. Sure. Uh, yes, uh, I'm a criminologist and the uh, associate professor in uh, the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice here at St. Ambrose. I've been here for about uh, so seven years, studying my eighth year, I think now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So um, happy to be here. Well, glad to have you on the show and um, be very excited to hear kind of about your perspectives on, on some things. So, um, you know, first of all, uh, Maybe we could, you could help us to understand a little bit, um, and especially, you know, from that that perspective of sociology and criminal justice. Mm-hmm. How did we get to this point, you know, um, in terms of um, how police works and the, the 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 racial aspects of all of this too? You know, this is not this is not a new problem. This isn't something that just suddenly happened. This has been, I think, in one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about like. There's been constant heat on this on this pot on the on the stove for a while, and and it's only you know finally kind of boiling over now. I don't know why it didn't boil over with previous incidents. I don't know why it didn't boil over when you know when I was in high school and watched police beating Rodney King in L.A. You know, but for whatever reason, it is taking hold in a way that it didn't um, in previous years, previous decades, and especially. Um, maybe given the nature of the, the 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 killing of George Floyd in particular, and the and just the, the that video in particular, which struck so many people, it is kind of um, awakening a lot of people, and particularly white people, to this um, to this reality in a way that is has not happened before. So maybe just start mm-hmm. with that, help us to understand kind of how we got to this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to, uh, to start off, I guess you know uh, you know. Th- I just I wanted to state or frame my discussion is I'm not speaking for the communities, uh, you know, the uh, historically oppressed, uh, you know, black, indigenous and communities of color, people of color. Uh, I, I believe that, you know, I, I'm only speaking from the perspective of, of criminological and, and sociological research, you know, from my own perspectives on the scholarship. I believe society should uh, listen to directly to those communities what they're saying and ask them directly. Uh, So I just wanted to to frame my uh, conversation and my perspectives uh, in that regard before I start. Um, And so uh, the question, you know, what led us here? You know, how how did we get to this point? Um, And, you know, having studied this area, having researched this area for for several years now, um, at least from a broad criminological, sociological perspective, um, 
I can say, you know, this country has a longstanding history of, uh, you know, racism and institutionalized racism going back uh, 400 years, here, uh, you know, roughly. Um, uh, to you know, going back to the issues of slavery, then going you know uh, to the issues of moving to uh, Jim Crow and Jim Crow South, and you know segregation and, and lynchings, and uh, then moving into what we have now, which is the system of mass incarceration, which some uh, scholars have said is a new form of Jim Crow laws that essentially targets and disproportionately impacts communities of color. Right. Um, and part of that process of, of you know, of what we call um, institutionalized racism is in the criminal justice system in all segments of it, whether in the courts, you know, the three major segments, the courts, uh, law enforcement or corrections. Right. It exists in all three of those areas. Um, and there's a history of uh, you know, institution, the institutions having roots in, in racism and, and anti-blackness. Right. Now, I'm not saying and notice I'm not saying that all officers, police officers or all members of the criminal justice community are racist. That's not my, my statement. Mm-hmm. I'm stating that the institutions have a history of it. Right. Yeah. Um, a, a longstanding history. And it's by institutionalized racism. I mean, it's firmly ingrained in the institutions and their policies and practices. And it has been for decades or maybe even longer centuries. And to the point where people make statements like, well, that's just the way the system works. That's just the way it happens. That's that's the way the system processes people and prosecutes them and incarcerates them and arrests them. That's just the way things are. No, actually, those things are constructs. They are actions and policies and practices created by human beings, by society, and then reinforced and perpetuated by human beings and by society and by the institutions we create, right? So that's where we see the establishment of these problems, right? Um, uh, Then you move on to why haven't we seen these issues go away if we've been, you know, we've just been seeing it, right, since the Rodney King era, since they began to invent technology such as portable cameras, right, which you saw somebody carry around on their shoulder in the early 90s. Well, now they're on everyone's phone. This has been in existence for decades, for centuries. This has been happening. It just hasn't been filmed. We haven't seen it. So technology has a part to play in bringing this to the human, you know, experience, well, experience, bringing it right before our eyes. Um, uh, Then why does it keep happening in institutions? Well, uh, you know, from that perspective, um, it, there's a, a resistance to change in, in a lot of these institutions, right? We'll have these events occur and they'll reach a boiling point and there'll be a lot of these, you know, statements being made and uh, ra- people that are rightfully and very deservedly angry and full of rage and protesting about these issues and tr- making demands that the institutions protect them and, and work in their favor. And I'm talking about black indigenous and people of color, what we need to use the term BIPOC, right? But, um, uh, these communities, you know, protect us, value us, treat us like everyone else. Um, and uh, that's where the Black Lives Matter movement came from, from, you know, from events in Ferguson, for example, is that, you know, felt they were devalued by society and not treated e- equally as, to, as every all other segments of society. And, you know, um, but then once these demands were made and these events happened, the institutions such as uh, you know, corrections such as criminal just the criminal justice system, whether police, uh, you know, the courts would say they'd make some reforms. They maybe would start some pilot programs, uh, maybe, you know, make a couple, you know, but these would the fun, they would have temporary funding. The funding would dry up or go away. The programs would just go back to business as usual. 
and they would go back to the same dysfunctional practices they were using before. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, interestingly, there's a, you know, there's researchers or sociologists like me. I'm a sociologist trained in cr- criminal, you know, or criminology or crime, you know, cr- focus on crime, essentially. Uh, you know, I do a lot of my research looking at, uh, you know, uh, looking at how to transform a, uh, the uh, criminal justice system through education and, re- you know, uh, rehabilitational programs it's focused on higher education. I'm, I'm a critical theorist, right? Um and, uh, you know, what I see is we have mountains, mountains of research out there. There's lots of criminological and criminal justice research that demonst- very clearly or strongly demonstrates evidence-based best practices. And what we see in America, interestingly, is the criminal justice system is resistant to that, that research. They don't use those policy suggestions or those practices. They don't, they don't implement them. Um, uh, and where they use, like, uh, popular, you know, uh, practices or you know that are that have been made politically popular and that have been sold to the public like the tough on crime era of the 80s 90s right very damaging criminal justice policies came out of that it created mass incarceration which is one of the most destructive forces in you know american criminal justice and in our society they well they didn't implement any evidence-based practices that that, that worked many work multitudes of practices work but the, whereas you look at other countries, I, I always use Scandinavia as an example, or many European countries, uh, J- Japan, you could use um, other countries where their practices, their criminal justice systems work very well and they implement evidence based practices to great success. Right. Um, so there's some real problems with that. And, and the real now we're seeing a real uh, boiling point or, you know, where. People said exactly what you just said. We've seen this 14 times, 100 times in the past 20 years, 30 years now, you know, and you and nothing's been done. It, it's still happening. We say we're going to make these reforms and they don't do them. Mm-hmm. And that is why you're seeing this immense and um, almost probably unprecedented blowback now where people are making statements like, we, well, now we need to defund the police. Now we need to abolish policing. Now we need to disband police departments and restructure them. Mm-hmm. People are making some some strong statements, and and I can't blame them for doing it, quite honestly. Um, I, I think that they have a precedent for making those statements. Yeah. Considering the the past inactions, uh, the the gross, you know, uh, what do you want to call it? You know, ig- ignorance, I guess, or you know, lack of yeah. a willingness to make change. Um, yeah. To answer your question, yeah, and that kind of leads into the other question, really. And and I, you know, I approach this um, as a Catholic priest. I, I think of like Catholic social teaching. Certainly, I I have training in moral theology, so I kind of approach it from that. Mm-hmm. And I think when we especially talk about policing and that kind of thing, uh, yeah, I understand that a list of thou shalt nots is not a good enough thing to make a moral life, right? There's right. the idea of the freedom for the good, not just the freedom, um, not just complete license, nor just a kind of here's a list of rules to follow, and if you break one of these, you know, here's what happens. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, you know, I think as human beings, it's written into us to, to, to be good, you know, and, and to mm-hmm. be, there's, a, there's a sense of higher calling, whether or not you believe in God or not, even that there, yeah. you know, we know what is the best in us, and, and we feel like that's what we should be striving for. So from a, like a moral mm-hmm. theology perspective, I, I certainly get that. And also from a Catholic social teaching 
perspective, right. it doesn't help that uh, we're not really getting to the root. You know, we're not getting to the root of the problem. Why do these problems exist in the first place, and how can, mm-hmm. can we eliminate those problems um, so that we're we're you know really living in a more just society that has the common good for all people of whatever color in mind. So. Um, mm-hmm. So those kind of things. So in terms of police in particular, I know in the last few weeks, when I first heard like on a radio, um, I'd listen to the the radio news, usually through NPR locally. And so, you know, when I first heard people talking about defunding the police, I was kind of scratching my head and thinking, okay, I kind of understand like like redistributing funds to other areas that would be helpful to kind of prevent these things. I get that. I understand that. I can see that. Um, and then when it kind of shifted to that language among some, um, and of course there's there's not one monolithic response to this either, even within those who are really asking for change. But when the language turned more to that language of abolish police, I'm like, hold on a second. I think I think we're always going to need some kind of police, you know, um, because even if we do live in a more just society, I, I while I would love to believe that there would be people that would never commit heinous or or violent crimes there will be. And, and so, um, and then I kind of had to check my own reaction in how I was listening to those people and those stories. I don't think anybody, even on kind of radical ends, is like saying tomorrow, zero police. Um, (laughs) so help us to understand kind of what, what's behind that movement or what's the idea behind defunding or abolishing or completely restructuring how we do law enforcement in this country. Okay, great question, uh, and I, I can I can certainly speak to some facets of, of those arguments and discussions. Um, uh, it's a big argument; it's a complex issue, uh, but you know, and I will try to do it justice by summarizing it as, as best I can. Um, but uh, you know, the rationale uh, for the argument for defunding police is premised on the the fact that even though the U.S. you know spends a disproportionately large amount of our national budget, our local and local budgets, uh, municipal budgets on um, on policing, um, while spending exceptionally small amounts of their budget on like social welfare and support programs for citizenry, for example, in comparison to other countries, um, we have a disproportionately large amount of crime and violence in our country in comparison to uh, uh, other countries, especially other, I guess, what would you call it, more developed countries, stable countries, right? Um, uh, to, from from that perspective, how, however you'd like to, uh, I don't like to place value judgments on different countries, you know, like the old first world, third world, kind of, you know, yeah. Cold War terms. But but in comparison to countries with our, you know, similar standards of living and technology and access to resources, we have a lot higher, you know, rates of crime and violence than they do. Even and we, even though we spend way more on policing than they do, yeah. which should logically say, you know, spending more more resources for them, we should have lower rates of crime and more. But maybe you you can, you know, certainly, you know, begin to, you know, understand why some of those things might not be happening based on what I said previously. Um, So, um, you know, interestingly, so much of the failure to reduce crime is based on this massive amount of, you know, um, you know, uh, criminal justice spending the U.S. does, you know, um, you know, it, it comes from the criminal justice system's refusal to implement evidence based best practices. You know, so unlike other countries, such as, you know, uh, the countries I mentioned before, uh, Scandinavian countries, I use Western European countries um, where practices are implemented, you know, to great relative success. There, there's, you know, so there's mountains of research, you know, out there that show that, you know, practices and policies work, but we're not implementing those. And also think police unions, for example, often block many of these practices from being implemented, for example. Um, 
So, you know, it, it, and there's uh, in addition, there's institutional resistance in all other areas of the criminal justice system, you know. So, um, you know, there's an argument, you know, of extreme, you know, last resort here. If the extreme spending isn't working, then we should defund them. And that's what they're people are talking about um you know of course the decreases in state funding would have to be coupled with and i say this very carefully you know and cautious coupled with the implementation of evidence-based best practices right um with other programs uh in their place done over a gradual uh time frame right uh you you'd have to implement large-scale social and cultural shifts you know call you know um you know cultural normative shifts uh that doesn't take place overnight that maybe takes place over a generation or two yeah um Interestingly, so um, you implement these things, which can. Uh, the, interestingly, though, here, here's the catch. There, not the catch, but the important point is, um, we should, you know, people say we should defund them. Of course, you know, we should couple them with the implementation of these uh, other effective programs, which ironically can be implemented effectively at lower cost to taxpayers, while yielding mm-hmm. results that actually benefit the economy in the long term. Mm-hmm. So. These are, you know, you want to sell a policy quickly and, you know, and effectively sell it on from an economic perspective. That always catches people's attention. But it is a long game process here. Right. Uh, You know, uh, integrate, you know, uh, for example, you know, eliminating mass incarceration is calls for abolishment of the prison system, too. But in the same perspective, gradually over time with massive social cultural shifts and institutional shifts uh, in how our country is, you know, structured and how it operates in order to implement these things. Um, and with that, more people out working in the workforce, less people incarcerated, no less people with, you know, criminal records following them around that destroy their lives and, you know, completely cripple their ability to function as, you know, uh, uh, you know, productive, you know, citizens that can, you know, get jobs and, you know, support their families, all these things, you know, if you eliminate those things and you create this functional society, everyone wins. It's like if the water in the harbor rises, all the ships rise, sort of idea, right? So hopefully that can yeah. kind of speak, speak to your question. That does help. Megan, what are, I mean, I don't know that your um, family uh, just sits down and talks about this every night necessarily, or that you're even like texting back and forth or having phone conversations with your friends about all this, but kind of bring in that student perspective for us, or what are you hearing from conversations with friends, family, et cetera? Yeah, um, and we have uh, we have been having some conversations uh, at home about it, and I think that's really beneficial, especially um, as we grow uh, into better people as humans, but, um, I am not well versed in, uh, the criminal justice system as much as I should be. I think I've been reading a lot of stuff, um, about this, um, idea of like abolishing the police or defunding the police. Um, I saw one thing about maybe like, um, uh, there's issues, uh, with, um, that police deal with that may be uh, better handled by a social worker. So I, I saw something about implementing uh, social workers into that mm-hmm. side of the system. So um, yeah. I guess my question is like, what uh, would that strategy look like? Uh, maybe defunding uh, the police and then implementing that those funds uh, elsewhere. What would that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's a great question. Um, and I, I can speak to that. Um, that's been done in some places, for example. Um, for example, uh, if you look at the, there's a program, and I want to say it's in Camden, New Jersey, and they've done a lot of interesting things there. 
uh, yeah, Camden had some of the highest crime rates in the United States, highest homicide rates at one point in time. Uh, they dis- they did disband their police department in Camden and rebuild it. Um, and they didn't like abolish it. They just disbanded the old department and reconstructed it again. In a, and and it, they've been having uh, experiencing greater success uh, with you know, reduced crime rates and better community police uh, relationships there. Um, there's a program there, um, for example, um, in Camden that revamped its policing in 2017, um, where officers are handing out more warnings and tickets and undergoing training that places and emphasize, you know, uh, training that places off, you know, officers on holding their fire. Um, in uh, Eugene, Oregon, there's a program called CAHOOTS, Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. It uh, deploys a medic and a crisis worker with mental health training to emergency calls, for example, right? So, so those are some ways um, that those things could take place. In Austin, Texas, 9-11 calls are answered by operators who inquire whether the caller needs police, uh, fire, or mental health services, uh, you know, for, uh, oh, sorry, needs police, uh, fire, or mental health services. And as part, you know, of a major kind of reconstruction or revamping of the public safety um, that took place last year in, in Austin, Texas, you know, so a, a major United States city. Um where yeah. the city added millions of dollars for mental health issues, right? Um, for example, so that's a, that's a great point. And there's, yeah, I think you know that idea, and I, and I, from what I've been reading too, even a lot of police officers have been saying we've been asked to do too much. We're not trained yeah. to do these things. There are other people mm-hmm. who are better trained to do these things. But when you walk into a situation um, that you are not particularly trained in, and you are Bearing a weapon, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's a tension there. You know, um, you you come mm-hmm. with a force into that situation um, that is in itself, in some ways, kind of provocative. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I I absolutely I get that, and I I do have you know friends that work in in law enforcement, and and I I haven't had serious mm-hmm. conversations with them since all of this has started, and um, but I would I would bet if I were to ask them, do you feel like something at least needs to be done so that you're not having to do stuff that you're really not comfortable or trained to do? Mm-hmm. I think they would probably say yes. That would make me a better mm-hmm. officer. That would make you know to do what I'm really supposed to do. Um, and of course, the other thing with this too, and I we've seen and we've read about you know the and it really has ramped up. I think, but even in my lifetime. Um, just in terms of police officers in my hometown community growing up to today, the the kind of well, not it's not kind of the increased militarization of of police, and part of that being that it's it's a it's a it's a bargain deal from the federal government when you can get you know this this piece of equipment you know that they need to get rid of, and it might be useful for something you want, but the signal that it sends. Um, and I, I mean, I have very conservative friends that I would think should be scratching their heads saying, yeah, I don't want a police state or a militarized police either, because we've seen that in, in ugly ways in, in other cultures and times in history. So a lot, lot there, certainly. And then the idea, too, of maybe, you know, uh, and I, I guess I'm cautious a little bit about this, too, but I, I mean, I understand it decriminalizing um low-level offenses, or at least yep. not bringing, you know, there are things that you should, it shouldn't mean a jail sentence for, you know, and, and, and that is, and you end Great. up creating a bigger problem, so. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I could do another podcast just on that point alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a lot to chew on here, and it is 
something I think, you know, and I we, last week we had uh, Lenny Jones, Leonard Jones from the Black Student Union on and talked to him to kind of get the perspective of our students on, on all, of this, all of this. Two weeks ago we had Fritz uh, come on too and, and talked sure. with him. And so, and these are conversations that we certainly, I think, as a campus community want to carry into the fall and uh, right. As I said last week, we'll, we, we will have failed if this is just another kind of, oh, yeah, remember when that happened five years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, why didn't we do something about it, then? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Uh, so we, you know, right. kind of history has handed us this moment, you know, um, and and I think we've got to kind of seize upon it in a, in a positive way. But it's not going to be right. easy. So and yeah, I'm, yeah, I appreciate your, your mentioning oh, yeah. that, yeah, this is going to have to be gradual and it will have to be implementing at the same time those evidence-based best practices so mm-hmm. absolutely great great yeah i mean now's the time for action right uh, you know i think we should you know listen to what our you know uh you know uh, black indigenous and communities of color are saying and yeah. uh and then you know start to look at you know what are the best practices you know uh and Look at what, you know, how can we collaborate and work with these, you know, impacted communities. Uh, even more so, we need to make changes, uh, you know, at the structural level uh, to eliminate some of the problems that are causing this, these, you know, issues, such as long-term, you know, uh, you know, economic and social disadvantage, you know, coupled with long, you know, historically oppressed minority, you know, yeah. you know, uh, Im- impacts race, the, the long-term impacts of racism, I guess is what I was trying to say. Yeah. How do we eliminate those issues, which are, you know, in this country are coupled with, you know, issues such as economic and you know, social political disadvantage. We need to address those issues, you know, at the, at the base level and in order to uh, eliminate the, these problems, uh, and once we can do that, we can begin to work. We, we need to do all these things, you know, because some of these things, if you just eliminate something at the surface or super, superficial level, it's just a Band-Aid cure. It doesn't work. It doesn't it's like the reforms mean, that were in the past. Oh, we did this training or we did this. So we're good. We right. checked that box. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. The, the social structures, the dysfunctional social structures that are oppressive structures are still there, still operating, still creating the same problems. Yeah. Until we address those and, and eliminate those, re- drastically reduce those, we're still, the, those populations are still going to be experiencing the same forms of oppression uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, violence, you know, and, uh, you know, the same social harms that they have always been experiencing. And, and now's the time to change that. Uh, and I hope we, I hope we as a society can, can work to do that. I hope we as, you know, a community at St. Ambrose can, can take some action and marshal all of our resources to uh, help with this process of change. Yeah. Yeah. Megan, you're a history major. Um, Is there any particular, um, are you more into American history? Are you more into world history? What's your, what's your kind of, um, what's your Um, go-to? Yeah. I, I don't, I guess I, I don't, I like all of it. I feel like I was a little bit uh, screwed over on the American history part because I don't, we learned everything that we should know, um, or I, at least I should know at this age. Um, but yeah, the, the history of policing in this country is just, it's crazy. What I've been learning now as a 21 year old history major in, in college, yeah. um, mm-hmm. in high yeah. school or um, even earlier. So, yeah. yeah, we're definitely, it's exposing the gaps in all of our education. I think, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, that's for sure. Um, 
So, but it, yeah, I, as I was a history major when I was a student too. So, I mean, I, my, I, I always like the saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Um, uh, yeah. The idea that, you know, we, we've seen things like this and sometimes we've learned from them and sometimes we haven't. And of course, no situation is completely analogous to another situation in the past or in a different culture and at a different time. But um, somehow we got to put those things together. But, or, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So I, I bet you didn't think I could tie this into Star Wars, Meg, but I found a way um, okay. because I've been rewatching the Clone Wars uh, cartoon series on, on Disney+. Plus. And, of course, over the sweep of this, right, like the Jedis are the good guys, right? They're the peacekeepers, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But it starts to come into the show at some point that, wait a second, these guys that were originally supposed to be peacekeepers are fighting this protracted war. And and some of them are turning bad and some of them are doing things, uh, employing tactics that they ought not do in the name of preserving peace and justice in the universe and and all this kind of stuff so it actually it's interesting how um that that show is is uh those at least those points are sticking out to me now more watching through that uh again so yeah <laughs> there's the star wars connection for the week because dr teach uh-huh. you need to know usually on this podcast okay. we have a little bit of seriousness and then we kind of talk about pop culture stuff that we're watching too so i had to get that oh, in. Right. But, absolutely is there a, is there a particular um, genre or movie or book or um, kind of yeah? You know, what's your pop culture go to, Doctor Tijan? Well, you know what is what is the pop culture that I let's see? Uh, I just read um, Watchmen. So, okay, uh, you're familiar with the graphic novel or I am familiar with or, it, but I have not yeah. read it. I have been told. Yeah. I think I did see the movie a few years ago, and I was not all that impressed. And people that know the yeah. the graphic novel said, "Oh, read the graphic novel; it's way better." Oh yeah. So that's okay. That's a very good recommendation. So I'll have to check that Absolutely. out for sure. Uh, and uh, the uh, HBO uh, series. There was only one season of it. I think it was from last year or two years ago. But um, and it's a a different take on the Watchmen universe. It, it, it does an alternative take, but it's, it's fantastically produced. Um, and sadly, they uh, only the producers or the director wouldn't agree to another season, so they only stuck with one season. But um, mm-hmm. and also, I, I'm an old school Star Wars person. Sure, okay. I, I remember watching. Uh, the first, uh, so it was the Empire Strikes Back, I think, in 1979. It was one of the first things yeah. I remember watching. I was I was four, so. But uh, that's so, funny. Uh, so you must be about ten years older than me, or, so, or something like. Yeah. Actually, the first movie I can remember vaguely seeing in the theater was Return of the Jedi, and that okay, would have been. Yeah. No, so you'd not, not you wouldn't be ten years old. You'd be a little, but yeah, that would have been like eighty. I think it was eighty five or eighty four that that came out, and yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, I have vague memories of that, but so I've been yeah. consuming a lot of this stuff lately. I can't oh, yeah. relate to either, of so I've never uh-huh. seen the first movie. <laughs> first movie I saw was from the newest trilogy, so that's cool. You guys uh-huh. have to see it. This Same. is the time to catch up, Meg. This is the time <laughs> to to watch through. So so much good material out there now. You've got all those Star Wars movies, yeah. Talking of yeah. Watchmen, and this is a topic for a whole nother podcast at some point too but i have been thinking a lot about like vigilantism <laughs> yeah and you know i don't know yeah. you know what i don't think we'll see anything on the scale of please god like what we see in these comic books you know but there will be people probably out there that are like well i'm going to take justice into my own hand 
on some mm-hmm. very ugly ways um, that you know, maybe we're already uh, yeah. seeing it. I don't know. Well, you, you could look at the you know the horrific history of lynching. It was yeah. you know, it was a the yeah. deep south. Mm-hmm. They believed they were you know the the racists, the Ku Klux Klan. You know, were engaging in a form of vigilanteism. Um, and it, even incidents of that have happened in, in recent history. You know, uh, so. Oh, yes, it, it's still occurring, and you, you might see it in some capacity. Well, you, you saw it, um, uh, let me see here, in, um, uh, well, I'm trying to think, you know, uh, j- just recently down in, down in Georgia, if, if I'm not mistaken, um, so with, with the jogger. Um, oh, yeah. He, he was gunned down while, while yeah, running. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Arbery. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, that, that's the form, that was a attempted form of, you know, well, a blatant form of, you know, we're going to take the law into our own hands. Yeah. Uh, of course. My point is that it rarely, it, it never really manifests like you see in the comic books where you have no. someone who is of, of good moral quality that takes this upon themselves to, right. to, to write society and to do so without really harming people. It always takes these kind of ugly forms, but. Um, and I think I would be able to pick out Elon Musk if he were wearing a Batman costume anyhow and say, ah, that's Elon Musk. You know, I, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. you but, could spot it. Yeah, yeah I could spot him. He's the only guy I could think of that might have the wealth and the technology to do the stuff that Batman does. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking like Warren Buffett might not, you know, he, he's. he's I think his superhero past. days are beyond him. Yeah, it might be past, but yeah, yeah. For example, uh, yeah. Well, um, Grant, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, we appreciate it. And thank you for your insight, especially on these issues that we're all kind of wrestling with and trying to sort out day to day and week to week. Um, But let's keep the conversation going, like I say, when we get back to campus. So, Absolutely. Uh, Look forward to seeing everyone in the fall in in some capacity. So um, (laughs) Early, as it turns out. So uh, Yeah, yeah. that's right. Is it a week early? A week week early. That's right. Yeah, that's okay. goes. Well, all, all right. right. Everybody stay safe and healthy. Yep. Meg, I'll let you sign us off. All right. May the faith be with you. And with your spirit. All right. Have a good week.